Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. Cake matters because cake defines a party. That's the point. Cake, hats, fizz, pole dancers. Crackers. I'm told there were no pole dancers. Party poppers. Is, is that your line you cross? If there are no pole dancers, he's safe. Is that right? No, I think that'd be the line. Hello and welcome to the Red Line Pub in Westminster. I'm Christopher Hope, the Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics, and this is Chopper's Politics. Now for the Tory party, Partygate is the party that never ends. In the House of Commons this week, Boris Johnson apologised dozens of times for his failings, while MPs voted on whether to investigate him now or in a few months' time for misleading the House of Commons. I have to say, I'm sorry, that for not obeying the letter and the spirit, and I think we have heard that the Prime Minister did know what the letter was, the Prime Minister now should be long gone. Madam Deputy Speaker, I'll certainly vote for this motion, but really, the Prime Minister should just know the gig's up. It is utterly depressing to be asked to defend the indefensible. Each time, part of us withers. The Prime Minister is to face another investigation over lockdown parties in Downing Street. This one will be led by MPs. This week on the podcast, we'll be hearing from a Boris Johnson cheerleader, Michael Fabricant. But first, former government chief whip Mark Harper became the most senior Tory MP to submit a letter of no confidence in Boris Johnson to the chairman of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tory MPs, Sir Graham Brady. Here he is making his feelings clear to a rather stunned House of Commons. I strongly support the government's actions uh, in standing up to Putin's aggression and helping Ukraine defend itself um, and our values. And it's exactly at times like this that our country needs a prime minister who exemplifies those values. I regret to say that we have a Prime Minister who broke the laws that he told the country they had to follow, hasn't been straightforward about it, and is now going to ask the men and the decent men and women on this these benches to defend what I think is indefensible. I'm very sorry to have to say this, but I no longer think he is worthy of the great office that he holds. Well, Mark Harper, why did you say that? Um, Well, uh, straightforwardly, because that's exactly what I believe. Um, For me, I've been willing to give the Prime Minister the benefit of waiting to have the facts. He asked us earlier this year to to do that. I thought that was a reasonable request. I think deciding whether or not you want to change the Prime Minister is a big deal. And I think you need all the facts at your disposal. So what changed for me uh, last week was the police concluded that in at least one case, uh, because remember they're looking at, I think, up to... Well, they're looking at 12 events in total, six of which he was at. They concluded that he had broken the criminal law on what was, not a minor detail, what was the central political question that's been facing our country for the best part of two years and which, you know, I've been very involved with as chair of the COVID recovery group, asking the government detailed questions on this subject... And I just felt that if your, if, if your whole government's been about setting the laws, telling people it's essential to follow them, and if you vary from that in any way, you're putting people's lives at risk, 
you owe it to people to be the person that is a role model in following those rules. But you framed your question with a mention of Russia at the beginning. And don't you think voters might think it's a bit ridiculous to try and say to the PM who's got to resign for a, quote, speeding ticket or, quote, fixed penalty notice, whatever it might be, compared to the, the enormity of what's going on in world politics? No, not at all. In fact, quite the reverse. I think it's exactly at times when we're facing tough international challenges and we're also facing uh, enormous domestic challenges, like the cost of living challenges that we're facing, that you need a Prime Minister who obeys the law, is straightforward and honest with people and who people can trust. And part of the problem here is he's broke the law. I, I think it's very difficult to avoid the conclusion that he's misled Parliament. And I also think he's asking Conservative MPs and, and frankly, the tens and thousands of men and women up and down the country campaigning for our candidates at the moment to defend the indefensible. And I think for all of those reasons, he, he needs to go. Does it go to the heart of the man? Is that the point of it? The fact that he was fined for breaking a law that he got his MPs to pass, that goes to the heart of, of an individual, a failing in him that makes him inappropriate to be prime minister. Is that, what, was that the point? Well, I think the problem is it demonstrates that he didn't think it important that he followed the rules. And, you know, we also know in Downing Street, there have been over 50 fines handed out for law breaking, because that's what it so is. Far. It's law breaking. So far, there are going to be lots more to come. And if you run an organisation, the culture of an organisation is set by and the responsibility of the person at the top. And for me, and I referred to this in my letter to Sir Graham Brady, and I think this will, will have struck you know, telegraph readers who are decent men and women who obey the law and respect the institutions of our country. For me, the single most disgusting, and I use that word with care, event, was the party that took place ahead of the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. Actually revealed by the <clears throat> Telegraph, by the yes. way. We were no, absolutely. Page one, our and, story. I, and I can tell you, when I read that story, I was absolutely furious and I was disgusted. And for two reasons. The people at that party were breaking the law. And they also, the government has circulated a guide to the rules of national mourning, the appropriate way of conducting yourself, and they breached it. And there were people at that party, senior political appointees in Downing Street, who broke the law, disrespected the Queen, and they still work in Downing Street. Who are they, these and, officials? Um, look, I'm, I'm not going to name them. How many I, are I think there? How many invidious. are there? But there's at least one political appointee who was someone involved in that party who disrespected the Queen, and she still works there. And I just don't think that's acceptable. And it shows to me that the Prime Minister didn't take it seriously. I think under any previous Prime Minister, anyone involved in this would have been shown the door, which is exactly why this wouldn't have happened. And you're speaking as a former government chief whip, which puts you into a bit of a club, I always think, amongst chief whips. You know how mm. hard that job is. Yes. You try and corral discipline on the back benches. What does it feel like to stand up and say that in the Commons well, for you? Well, it, it, it's not easy at all. And I'd say two things. First of all, I am been in the Conservative Party since I was 17 years old, and I, I'm fully anticipating being the Conservative Party for the day I die, which I hope will be a, you know, an equally long way in the, the future, Absolutely, uh, as I've been in the past. And I'm very loyal to my party, but the party is bigger than an individual, and I'm very worried about where we're going. And I think, having been Chief Whip, and I've had to persuade Conservative MPs to do things to support the, mm. the then Prime Minister when I was Chief well, Whip. Well, the Lib Dems. I mean, you know, yeah. you made well, the Lib Dem policies. Were exactly. And um, I've had to persuade people to do things that perhaps that they didn't think were a good idea. But I always felt I had a good story to tell, a good argument for people, and they wouldn't be 
asked to do things that they would then come to regret. And I, as I said, for me, the things that ministers and backbenchers are being asked to defend are not things that they should be being asked to defend. And this wasn't about the lockdowns. You were a critic of the government's policy on, on lockdown. I challenge both the Prime Minister and other ministers over and over again about the justification for these laws, why we were passing laws and not just issuing guidance for people. And over and over again, they said to me... These laws were essential. All these detailed rules mattered and it was imperative that people followed them or lives would be put at risk. And I remember one case when I challenged the government on the modelling and the accuracy of that. And I was shown to be right in the end on that. And someone in Downing Street briefed to one of the newspapers that I wanted to kill 90,000 people. Yeah, let it rip Because I had the temerity to ask some questions. Now, given all of that, to then find out that the leader of the government that was saying all of that to people and making rules which individuals in our country followed, even at the most immense personal cost, to find out the leader of that government was basically not following them, not troubling to find out what any of them were, and didn't think they applied to him or the people in Downing Street, I personally think is unacceptable. Was there any, any reaction when you left the chamber, any backslapping? Well done, Mark. I'll be putting mine in next week. I, I've had quite a lot of colleagues indicate to me that they thought I was right, some colleagues have already put letters in, haven't made it public. How many of those are um, there? I, I don't know. You mean a pub, no I genuinely don't know because it's not the sort of thing people necessarily publicise. But there have been people who have put letters in who we, who we don't know about. But I think quite a lot of colleagues want to wait for all of the police work to be finished. Some of them will then want to wait to see Sue Gray's full report. And then those colleagues, particularly that are in areas of the country that have local elections, probably want those to be out of the way. So mm. that's why I didn't expect anybody to, to follow me particularly this week. But I thought it was important that I said this publicly. And I also waited till the House was back because as a Member of Parliament, I thought it was appropriate as a Member of Parliament to say what I wanted to say in the House of Commons. And I also thought it was the right thing to do to be big enough to say it to the yeah. Prime Minister's face, not behind his back. And then come on... Charles Politics podcast and tell our listeners. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that, that's the natural order of things. Indeed, isn't it? yes. House but, of Commons first and then Chopper's podcast. Exactly. Um, on, a, on a detail, when you send off a letter of such import, do you, do you put a second class stamp on? Is it hand delivered? No, I'm afraid in the modern world, it is that you are able to send these letters to Sir Graham Brady by email. You emailed so, this attachment. <laughs> but but, but people detail. will have noticed it was a proper letter with a proper signature <laughs> on it. Yes. And it was a. Well, but, listen, you know. about your letter, now I've been reading it closely. I'll read one paragraph from it and this yep. is the key paragraph the code the ministerial code says and you quote ministers who knowingly mislead parliament will be expected to offer their resignation you then say given we know the pm broke the law and there was a systematic law breaking in downing street it's difficult to avoid conclusion that he has misled parliament and that to me goes to the heart of why a lot of your colleagues aren't supporting you because it was that question from peter bowen mp for wellingborough on tuesday he said did you deliberately mislead Parliament to the Prime Minister? And he said no. And because the PM thinks he didn't mislead Parliament, he didn't mislead Parliament. And the question is knowingly mislead, you see, in your, in your letter. Yes. And I think that's his wriggle room. That's what will get him off. And that's well, why you might not succeed. Well, look, it's a judgment call here. And for me, if it was only other people who'd broken the law... You could just about, I think you're stretching it a bit, because I think the Prime Minister has a duty, frankly, to know what's going on in Downing Street. He sets the, the tone. But you could just about believe that he was assured about things and he didn't know. But when we now know that he himself actually 
was at an illegal gathering and broke the law. Well, the, he says the, the cake wasn't produced. Yeah, but, but, that, but those are all, all the stuff about cake him. and drink. And stuff. It's all actually irrelevant. The law at the time yes. said you couldn't meet people, anybody, unless it was reasonably necessary and for work purposes. And that defence could crumble going forward yeah. if you see pictures of him with, with uh, And I'm afraid this, this thing that's been invented retrospectively, this work event, there's no such thing in the law as a work event. No it's one was allowed. Only, you were not it? allowed to have social events with your work colleagues in the workplace. I remember when we came. What's back the to language? Essential business gathering. It was. It had to be reasonably necessary for work purposes. So you were allowed to have meetings with colleagues. Um, we would have been allowed to meet for work purposes. What you were not allowed to do, even with your work colleagues who you were seeing every day at meetings, you were not then allowed at that time to go off and have social gatherings with them. It just wasn't allowed. And this idea there was a work event get out is just not true. So my view is the fact that we know he was at events, and there were so many events now we know in Downing Street, there were at least 12 that have met the threshold to be investigated by the police, and we now know the law-breaking was rife. I think it strains credibility beyond breaking point that he didn't know what was going on. And frankly, if he didn't know what was going on, that also raises some important questions about the way the organisation was being run. So one way or the other, he either did know or should have known before he made those assurances to Parliament. Overnight, Boris Johnson has said on the flight to India he wants to fight the 2024 election. Let's let's say it's in May 24, because everyone thinks it is. You've got a problem. What will you do if he fights it and you say he shouldn't be leader? And now you backed him in 2019. He was the right leader to get us out of the European Union, the right, the right kind of guy to deliver Brexit. I think that's agreed by a lot of people. Even yep. Jeremy Hunt may agree with that now, I don't know. But what are you doing in 2024 if he's your leader? Well, look, f- first of all, I don't think he will be. And in fact, you, you raised the trip to India. And I think actually the trip to India has been very interesting. The interviews that the Prime Minister's given overnight, uh, which we've seen in the papers, I think has demonstrated that what we saw on Tuesday in the House of Commons, the apology and the contriteness, was an act. It hasn't lasted very long. He said, said sorry, didn't he, 20 or 30 times on, on Tuesday. We gave, we gave up counting yeah. at the end. Well, you can say you sorry think, a lot. Do you think didn't mean it? You can say sorry a lot, and it's about whether you mean it. And whether you mean it is about what you do about it. And the fact is... In that interview, he's effectively said this doesn't matter, and I think it matters enormously to people around the country who couldn't say goodbye to dying relatives, people who couldn't go to funerals, people who couldn't see their parents or their children for months and months and months upon end, people who made enormous sacrifices. There'll be loads of your listeners and Telegraph readers who made enormous sacrifices, and I think they had the right to expect that the leader of the country was telling them these sacrifices were necessary did the same. It does matter. It goes to the heart of how our system of politics works. And the fact that he's saying it's not important on his trip, I think, misunderstands what this is all about. And the fact that he's then saying he is definitely going to lead us into the next election should remind my colleagues about what this debate is about. It's about, do we want him to lead us into the next election? And I set out clearly in my letter, I don't think he should. I think the Conservative Party has an enormous amount to offer our country, but I don't think it can do that under his leadership. And I think it's important that we go and fight the next election with a different leader, a different Prime Minister. And I think if we do that, we'll be able to offer an optimistic, positive vision, which people will be able to trust 
And I think we will then be able to win and continue to govern our country. And I fundamentally think the Conservative Party delivers better government for the whole country than any other party. And I want to make sure we're able to do that. We can't do it if Boris Johnson's leading us. That's why we need to change. And that regime change must happen when? This year? I think it needs to happen as soon as possible. When's the, yeah, when's the, when's the window of opportunity close well, for that change? Well, so, sooner the better. And I think the choice for my colleagues is going to be this, is we're going to have the Met concluding on, on other events. Sue Gray's report's going to come out and then colleagues are going to have to make a decision. And there was a fantastic, if I'm allowed to refer to a yes, rival publication, um, Conservative Home had a fantastic article on there by Paul Goodman where he went through what might be going through the minds of Conservative MPs and all the reasons why people might put off making a decision. But in the end, he, he reminded us that not making a decision mm. is actually making a decision. Colleagues have got to decide, do they want to go into the election with Boris Johnson leading the Conservative Party? If they do, they can just sit on their hands. But if they don't, they've got to send a letter to Sir Graham Brady. And if there's a vote of confidence, they've got to be prepared to, to vote against him. And do you expect that all that happened before July? Do you expect that the, the, the 54 letters to be breached, the number required well, to trigger it, it, a no-confidence vote? It slightly depends on what happens with the Met investigation. But if the Met investigation is concluded and we see the result of that, the Sue Gray report, and I'm also very confident that we're going to see photographs from these events, then I think my colleagues will have enough evidence to make a decision. And I very much hope that a majority of them reach the same conclusion that I have. We can resolve this matter then, and then we can give the country the fresh leadership it deserves. Before the summer break, then? Yes. And just finally, if not him, who? Well, the honest... You stood, didn't you, against him for to be leader? I mean, would it be you? Would it be somebody else? No, it, it isn't going to be me. And so I, you won't stand? Uh, no. And, I, um, um, and I've, I've said that because I don't want this whole debate exactly. this week to be about me. It's about whether he's the right person to lead us. But look, we've got fantastically talented people in the Conservative Party. And the way this works is if there's a vacancy, if we vote against him in a vote of no confidence and there's a vacancy, good men and women will put their names forward. And there'll be a contest and they'll be tested in the contest and we will pick the right person to lead so the again, party you know, we're, and become Prime Minister. We're in a pub, this kind of place has had all sorts of secrets over the years. Who, who, who is the list of who, who's the, the favourite to succeed? Because well, the, I, a lot of his allies say, if not him, who? And, well, look, and I don't think... Ben Wallace is, well, is look, the top of the list you, and Con Home. You Liz never Truss. know with these things who is going to emerge. The whole point of having a contest is it tests people. So people put their names forward... And people get the opportunity to set out their store, lay out their vision, and then they get tested. Colleagues ask them questions. Colleagues talk to them. You get it. We get it down to the two best people. And then Conservative Party members in the country get to test them. And over a period of time, they're tested. And it's by testing people mm. that you get the right answer. You don't want to prejudge that And I process. don't want to prejudge that process. Yeah. Well, Mark Harper, former Chief Whip, who's made a big Bold, brave choice. Where, where, where would you rank this in your choices of your of your long career so far? I mean, um, it's a big one. Well, it, it is a big call, I think, to to decide that we should change the prime minister. That's why I was prepared to to wait till we had the facts. But I think now that we've got the facts, I've made my decision, and it's going to be for others, uh, my colleagues, mm. to decide which side of that divide there on over the coming days, weeks and months. Well, thanks, Ian. We can hear the uh, division bell ringing somewhere in Westminster, even from the Red Lion pub. So uh, it's great to have you on and you better go into the Commons and debate for the Privileges Committee motion today. Great pleasure, Chris. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mark Harper there. Now, if Mark Harper is symbolising one half of the coin in terms of the PM's future this week, 
then the other side of that coin is very definitely polished by Michael Fabricant. The Tory MP for Litchfield has made numerous comments over the past few weeks downplaying the impact of Partygate on Boris Johnson. So I thought it was high time that I asked Michael Fabricant to join me in my usual stool in the Red Lion pub in Westminster for a chat about Partygate and pole dancing. Have a listen. Michael Fabricant, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Your first time. Yes, indeed. Should Boris Johnson resign over Partygate? No, I don't think so. And you're expecting me to say that. Let me explain why. I mean, it wasn't just him who broke the rules, it now seems. It was very, very senior civil servants. And prime ministers looked to civil servants to give them the advice. And given that uh, the second most senior civil servant in number 10 was also tied up with one of the uh, sessions, I'm trying to avoid the word party. um, (laughs) Drinking sessions. (laughs) Well, you know, whatever. I wasn't there. I was locked down doing my stuff in Litchfield, actually. So uh, he he persuaded your colleagues, you, to go through the lobbies and support these lockdown laws. You know, he... The Prime Minister makes the laws. I mean, you can't just pass it on to the, the, the hired staff, the officials. It's on him, isn't it? But the laws were all about not spreading disease, and I very much uh, believed in all that. You know, the epidemiology is tremendously important in this. And uh, the idea was that people shouldn't be going to other events, mixing with outsiders, and therefore, as I say, spreading the disease. But in the case of, I believe... We'll find out, no doubt, when the Sue Gray report comes out. But I believe all these events in Downing Street were the very people who worked there, cheek by jowl, every day, every hour of the day, almost. So there was no question of the disease being spread. In fact, I gave very controversial mention to uh, some teachers and some nurses who I know. And since incidentally mentioning it on BBC television, I've had various people emailing me with more information of these events happening, where people at the end of a long, hard shift, a minority, but nevertheless, you know, there are 500,000 nurses, 625,000 teachers. It would be pretty extraordinary if not one of them didn't quite naturally decide that they might it's more Have than a drink. Well, how many? What the, what's the evidence of saying that? Because I got a letter sent to me by the National Education Union writing to you. Um, oh, upset I mean, I, 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 of your remarks about teachers. I have what's had a whole. I've had a whole gamut of uh, pretty identical letters from trade unions talking about this. Let me be absolutely clear. I wasn't judging in any way those teachers, those nurses who actually chose to have a drink at the end of a long, hard session. I think it was a perfectly human thing to do after a long, long day. And that's why I think this judgmental attitude that many people seem to have about the Prime Minister, just like I choose not to judge that minority of nurses and teachers, I don't judge them at all. I think it was perfectly natural, actually. But you know what? They too had been working cheek by jowl. They too were not thinking this would spread the disease. There's a censoriousness, is there, in public life, do you think, which is a bit unfair because... It's a very Anglo-Saxon thing, this censoriousness. I do wonder whether the the French or the Italians, you know, (laughs) would be carrying on as we're doing if, and I'm quite sure there were the cases where people... Maybe, but don't we, shouldn't we? Aren't we right to expect higher standards from people who make laws? That, that's the point of it, isn't it? Well, I think the people who make laws 
certainly the prime minister who doesn't directly make laws but supports the laws needs to have advice from the experts and the experts are the civil servants i'm not blaming the civil servants either i mean it could be argued in fact joanne cherry from the snp argued well if you didn't agree with it why didn't you actually contest the fixed penalty notice but the answer is one is accepting a fixed penalty notice does not actually mean you have accepted that you have committed a criminal offence. A point of law which might be fine, but nevertheless an important point of law. Do you think he should have fought, the, him and Rishi Sunak and Carrie Johnson should have fought their fines? Well, I suppose they thought, and I think it's a fine judgment, that, you know, do you really want to have a court case that could go on for months and months and months? I mean, this is never-ending, and I can tell you that many of my colleagues and I are pretty exhausted by it all. I just want it over. Well, there's plenty of that, people that telling me that when I sit at my daily table in Portcullis House a few hundred yards from where we're sitting now in the Red Lion pub. Um, do you sense a whiff of hypocrisy amongst critics of Boris Johnson over this? I don't mind like hypocrisy. Saying... I, I, just, uh, I just sense, you know, jumping on the bandwagon. Mm. And in fairness to those people, colleagues of mine in the House of Commons who say, oh, isn't Starmer dreadful for doing this and West Streeting and all the rest of them? I said, you know what? I think we'd have been doing the same in their position. Mm. It's what oppositions do. Well, we heard, we heard, didn't we, Keir Starmer, raise the issue of John Robinson, a constituency of yours in Litchfield, who told how he couldn't see his wife in hospital, controlled hand that she died, that his son-in-law had to stay at home as he would have been a, a seventh mourner at the funeral. Do you know John Robinson? Have you met no, him? No, I don't know him at all. I mean, I've since been brought to my attention. He wrote to The Guardian about this issue, mm. so which is interesting in itself, I think. Not to you. Not to me, at least... But we don't know of him, unless an email went astray, but we're yes. not aware of him. But he's your constituent, and what would you say to him? Well, what I actually said in the House of Commons afterwards, namely, you know, this is a tragedy. There are so many tragedies. My best friend, his mother had gone into hospital for an unrelated problem and caught COVID in hospital and subsequently died, and he couldn't visit her. There are so many of these tragedies. But, you know, as I've also said, I think in a way it's a little bit beneath Keir Starmer to be weaponising the personal tragedies, these heart-wrenching events, you know, just to score political points. But he's doing that because that's how people feel about rule-breaking. They're feeling that I didn't go and hold the hand of someone who who died, but meanwhile the PM is partying. Well... As I said earlier on in this interview, this was amongst people he was working with anyway. There is no question, as far as I know, Boris Johnson leaving Number 10 Downing Mm. Street, going out to somewhere else and attending a party, you know, which would have been spreading the disease and very different. As far as. There was a karaoke machine at one of the parties and a suitcase of booze at another party. Well, the suitcase of booze thing has been going on ages because I know this happened during Tony Blair's time. I mean, I rather controversially said, you know, (laughs) you wouldn't have to do this if there was a bar at number 10 Downing Street. Just there are a number of bars in the House of Commons. But using the suitcase, you know, to trundle in wine or beer has been going on for years and years and years. Civil servants doing it under Blair, Brown... Cameron and the rest, you know, so there was nothing new in that. And that's really what annoys me about this whole affair, the sort of hypocrisy. I think this is the only hypocrisy, really, the distortion of the truth by people who 
pin this thing and saying, oh, this was unique to Boris Johnson, when it was far from unique. And don't you worry, though, that the, the rows about parching and whether or not it's legitimate or not, you said it's not, um, Mars... The COVID legacy of, of vaccinations, right. boosters. First country in the all world. That, that you is, know all this. And, yeah, uh, but, but, you but know, it's and, marring and, that record, isn't it? But that's, isn't that, that's the shame. But that's what oppositions do. So, you know, of course it's a distortion. Of course it's a nonsense. Of course, in the great scheme of things, it's ridiculous. But on the other hand, you know, I've been in opposition. I know what it's like. And it's the only thing they've got. Because let's face it, I mean, otherwise... It's a great vacuum but surrounding you're, you're, the you're Labour You're being a bit unfair, though. It's not just opposition. It's, it's people who have lost somebody. It's, it's people who aren't political are just cross with Boris Johnson about this. It's not, it's not manufactured opposition-type rows. It's a proper feeling, I think, amongst yeah, people. Yeah, but that's because it's getting such prominence over everything else. If it weren't So it's getting... the BBC's fault? No, it's not the BBC. Or the Telegraph's fault, or, or the media's fault. Or the Telegraph, fault. or the media, they are reflecting, I suppose, it's the opposition's fault for highlighting it non-stop. But then, and I'm now repeating myself over and over again, it is something that we would probably have done. But as I say, it's because there is such a policy vacuum at the moment with the Labour Party. We've had Mark Harper on this podcast today and he's set out why he's put his letter in of no confidence. He says there are more letters out there that haven't been declared. He's talked about why Boris Johnson shouldn't be the leader to take this party into the next general election. What would you say to him if he were sitting in the pub with you now? Yeah, I'd say it to him very quietly without other people listening. What would you say to him? What to tell me? Tell me. Imagine I'm, I'm Mark Harper. Imagine I'm Mark Harper. I'm not going to tell you. I'm quite a good looking chap. <laughs> I can Mark Harper. Okay, you won't give us the advice to Mark, to Mark Harper, but, but you are a, a keen student of Conservative politics, of politics in general over the past few decades. What are the danger points of Boris Johnson going forward from this point? Mm, well, everyone's saying it's going to be the local elections. I don't think so. I think that's already been discounted. I think, uh, you know, first of all, we had very good results four years ago. Secondly, I think that, uh, you know, obviously with all this happening at the moment, we, you know, it would be a miracle if we did well. So that, I think, is understood. I think it all comes down to how many more fines there are and the circumstances of the fine. The famous Kate Gate. You know what? I'm feeling old because, you know, a friend of mine said, what is all this gate? And I had to explain to them Watergate. Watergate. Yes. And, I, and he was saying, well, what is Watergate? I'm explaining it was a building. <laughs> it still is a building in Washington, <laughs> D.C., and overlooking the uh, Potomac. I was two years know, old when Watergate happened. I went, were you? I, I went well, to ask how old you oh, were. I remember it. I remember <laughs> you remember it. it? But I remember it. Sorry, we're digressing. But I remember hearing on the news that there had been the break-in. And my just thinking, oh, this is typical American politics. Yeah. Nothing will come of it. Yeah. And, of course, it brought down a president. Yes. But anyways... And hence uh, Gate follows any kind of scandal. You know. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you're pointing this out to your young listeners. <laughs> Partygate, yes. Partygate or, or Gate, you know, is one thing. I mean, if something else were to break, which... Uh, Photos yeah, might be a problem for him, Michael. Photographs, well, fines, yeah, more absolutely. fines. Absolutely. Because he, his, his defence is, I did not knowingly mislead. And he told that to Peter Bowen, the MP for Wellingborough in the right. House. And that was the key response upon which a lot of Tory MPs are hanging their defence of Boris Johnson. If it becomes quite clear that he did pretty much know it was a party, that defence becomes a problem. If it was a proper party in every respect of the word, that will be a major danger point. That's correct. If it's a, a fine related to a cake gate affair, 
then there'll be sympathy because, as I say, well, it's just another of the same thing. But if it were something far more serious, something that was obviously a party with outsiders, for example, then that's going to be very The reason difficult. why cake matters, of course, is cake always matters, but he's always why cake matters in this situation. It only it... mattered to Marie Antoinette, <laughs> yes. who apparently Let... never did say, let them eat cake. It's but not. anyway... We... But cake matters because cake defines a party. That's the point. Cake, hats, fizz... You know, pole dancers. Crackers. I'm told there were no pole dancers. Party poppers. Is, is that your line uh, you cross? If there are no pole dancers, he's safe. Is that right? I think that'd be the line. I think that's that's very good, actually, Chris. I shall remember that because uh, if God forbid something really terrible happens, I'll ask the prime minister in the house. What? But were there pole dancers? Because if there were, no, he's safe. It's not a proper party. Danger points, then. Okay, so we've gone past fines. What are the other danger points, Michael Fabricant? Well, I think that is the danger point, because the fines will be related to specific events. Of course, the other big one will be the Sue Gray report, depending on what she says. Could be by the time the Sue Gray report comes out, we'll have known about it anyway, in which case it won't be a danger point. It just depends whether that says something new. But, you know, there's a lot of goodwill in the parliamentary party towards Boris. A lot of people think, well, fair but for the grace of God go we, actually. Of course, there are lots of, uh, there are, well, lots, but there's a significant minority of Conservative MPs who want him gone. But let's be clear, that has more to do with either they're not liking him generally, or, which I think is far more the point, what he has done in getting us out of the European Union. You think it's a Brexit conspiracy? I think there's a high correlation between what the Whips like to call the awkward squad and those who argued for remain vociferously even after the party voted for Brexit. But David Davis, David Davis is in the name of God go and he's a he's Brexit secretary. He's not a Remainer, is he? No, and Mark Harper was a, a lever too. Nevertheless, I'll repeat it, I believe there is actually a high correlation. Is that even credible? I mean, aren't we past Brexit? Gosh, I can't. Some people, you know, you know, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, (laughs) puts it, you know, a marvelous way. And I'd love to give him full credit, but I think he would go mad if I mentioned his name. And he says, you know, we all know the tragic sufferers, if you like, of uh, long COVID, which is a painful disease. Sadly, there are many not just in the House of Commons, but in the public too, who suffer from long Brexit. <laughs> they can't get over it. <laughs> Going back to the point, I think, of the party gate, and it seems from some of your colleagues, I speak to you privately, that it goes to the heart of the individual, that if, he, if he's breaching laws he's passed, there's a kind of character fault in Boris Johnson which makes him inappropriate to carry on as Prime Minister. That's that's the on the serious point. That that is why they. It might seem frivolous for arguing about cake, but it, that that's it's almost the kind of it's the pimple, the the pus pimple. But below that, there's a kind of concern about him about to erupt. If you allow the adolescent analogy. Oh, I'm feeling quite sick. Um, no, I think the weakness, if you like, which is also a strength of Boris Johnson, is that he's not a details man. He's a grand picture man. And we saw that in Brexit. We saw that in the way he handled the whole COVID crisis by ignoring the European Medical Agency and going out himself for a vaccine. And we've seen it in other instances too. He's not a details man. And as I said earlier on, he relies on his civil servants. Hmm. 
I would rather have, actually, a prime minister who's a visionary. I don't like to compare Churchill with uh, Boris. He won't mind Because he won't mind that. He'll love it. But there is a similarity. And the similarity is Churchill wasn't a details man either. He was also a journalist using colourful language. He also went for the big picture. And that's what I admire. Quite often the details men, like, you know, John Major... Get scared. Or Theresa May. Or Theresa May are scared once. And you can't do this in business either, by the way, having been in business. You can't look at every single possibility of where something might go wrong. Because if you do, you're paralysed by fear and you won't do anything. I often wonder whether Churchill would survive first encounter with Twitter. I mean, he wouldn't wouldn't imagine trying to justify the Dunkirk evacuation. Um, a few days out from that, you know, imagine the questions about little boats to France. How can that possibly happen? That's right. You know, I can see it now. I can see uh, Keir Starmer, you know, if he wasn't in the national government saying that this is an outrage and, uh, you know, we would have done it so differently. How? Well, we'd have done it differently. Properly. We'd have done it really well. <laughs> it's great to have you on the podcast, Michael Fabrican. Mark Harper thinks that Boris Johnson shouldn't lead the country, the party, into the next election. Do you think he will? I don't know. I think it all depends now on how over the next few months, I hope he will, because I think we need someone of his character. And it's difficult to think, actually, who might replace him. But that's not the reason why I hope he will. I hope he will because of his character, because of his positive nature, because of his imagination. And we need imaginative prime ministers but it will all depend on what comes out over the next few months. Michael Fabricant, it's been great to have you on the podcast and do come on again. Thank you. It's been great doing this, Chris, apart from this ridiculous microphone you gave me, <laughs> which was like pinned around my ear and kept falling off. I think off. it's about to leave your face. So yes, I think it is. Now. Yes, if I've been fading in and out, I just want the listeners to know it's not me walking out of the door. It's the microphone falling off. Michael Fabricant there. Right, do stay with us. Coming up, we'll be talking about an example of everyday, modern-day sexism right here in Parliament, right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, if I told you that 8% of the House of Lords was reserved for men only in 2022, you'd be surprised, possibly appalled. I know I was. And someone hoping that the government can take action is Harriet Baldwin, a former government minister and the Tory MP for West Worcestershire. Harriet Baldwin, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Why is the House of Lords sexist? Well, it's unbelievable that an eighth of the seats in the House of Lords are reserved for men 
only. Can you believe it? In the 21st century, because of the system of the 92 hereditary peerages, which almost always go to men, we have a situation in our own legislature in the 21st century where we reserve seats for men only. And I just think it's a scandal and it's about time we changed it. And this is about primogeniture, this Latin term, which what is primogeniture? Oh, it's a difficult word to pronounce, <laughs> Chris, but basically uh, where the title of Earl or Duke goes to the firstborn son. And any daughters who might have come along before them um, get no look in whatsoever. And that's an anachronism. And it's possible to do because we changed the law for the crown back in 2013. So it would be the child of Prince George if that were a woman who would be in line for succeeding to the crown. And we are blessed, aren't we, Chris, to have lived in an Elizabethan era for 70 years. We've seen how wonderful it is to have a queen. And clearly, it's unacceptable that in our legislature, people who make the laws of this land, that we reserve some of those seats just for men. And the change you're proposing in in the Hereditary Titles Female Succession Bill, which you published yesterday in the House of Commons, is what? Because it would benefit or would change the the way estates are handed down for lots of aristocrats as well as be affecting House Lords. Yeah, I think it's just over 800 titles in the country that this would affect, all of whom are eligible to be one of the 92 peers in the House of Lords. So it would change that. It wouldn't be retrospective. So none of the existing identified lines of succession would change. But henceforward, if there's a firstborn child who is a girl then she could succeed to the title and be eligible to stand to be a peer in the House of Lords. The way my bill's written is that it would affect all of those 800 plus titles across uh, across the country. But just with the peerages, would it affect the inheriting? Yeah, uh, but the argument that I'm making is that it really matters when it comes to the legislature and it's just simply not acceptable in this year 2022 to say I'm sorry ladies but an eighth of those seats in the House of Lords are not for you. It just does seem extraordinary. It's incredible. Where is the opposition to this coming from? I mean it's it's surely inarguable in the 21st century what you're saying. It is inarguable, and I haven't sensed any opposition per se. Just too um, difficult basket, possibly. But it's in the too difficult basket. It's in the can of worms basket. Oh. Because obviously there will be people who will say, well, why have we got hereditary peerages in the first place? Why have we got hereditary peers in our legislature in the first place? So it does open a can of worms. If you recall back in, I think it was 2013, at the same time as the crown succession was being changed, there were proposals to change the way that the House of Lords operates and they ran into the mire. And I think ever since then, governments of all stripes have kind of looked at that issue when they published their (laughs) manifestos and just sort of put it in the too difficult basket. Yes, I think this is a really small and very symbolic change that really matters for the equality of men and women in this country. It's one of the overlooked corners of our our country, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And if we could just put it in a small piece of legislation, tuck it in there without opening the whole can of worms, then I think (laughs) it can get done. On that can of worms, some newspapers have been going on about the issue of the 92 hereditary periods. It was, of course, more until Tony Blair cut them down to a kind of random number of... I don't know why it's 92, actually, by the way. Did you know why it's 92? It's before my time, Chris. (laughs) It's lost in the I've no idea why it's like, but but it does seem odd, doesn't it, that um, because of your how you're born, you get this chance to pass and vote on laws. I mean, it is 
that's the problem or the worry might be for people that you're going to... That's right. There'll be people who'll say, well, why do we have a House of Lords anymore? Why do we have hereditary peers in the House of Lords? So it does open all those other questions. But I think just on this simple point of sex equality in the 21st century, this bit has to be changed. And Harriet Baldwin, of course, you've published a 10-minute rule bill, which is a way of airing an issue in Parliament. Mm. It won't become law without government Mm. support. Will you get government support for this? I don't know, but I'm very pleased to say that after listening to my speech yesterday, the government minister on the front bench has immediately invited me in for a meeting. Who's that? That's Nigel Adams. Uh, And so we're seeing him today, in fact, and we're hoping that we can persuade him that this has got cross-party support. It's got support from everyone on our benches. Really lots of colleagues came in to support me yesterday. Let's get it done. There's a Queen's speech on the 10th of May. Imagine if the Queen announced it in in, in the House of Lords. I know. You're also, of course, Vice Chairman of the COVID Recovery Group. Do you worry about this rouse about parties? I mean, your your Chairman, um, Mark Harper, has put in a letter of no confidence in the PM. Have you put one in? I haven't, no. Um, I think that it has to be a very high bar in this country to remove an elected prime minister. And I know there's an ongoing investigation. There are lots of other announcements to be made on this journey. At this moment, in my judgment, the bar is certainly not high enough to remove an elected prime minister on the basis of what we know so far. And he said sorry. Is that enough for you? I mean, he says sorry 20 or 30 times in the Commons on Tuesday. And overnight, he's, he's been sounding less apologetic on a trip to India. Do you, do you worry about that? Well, I understand because we all suffered through these two years. And the reason the COVID recovery group was set up was really just to question some of these draconian uh, instructions that we were giving to the population, which I think, you know, possibly in many cases did more harm than good. It was a very, very difficult time. A lot of my constituents suffered enormous difficulties. They weren't able to attend loved ones who were dying and so on. So I completely understand how strongly people feel about that. Does it then follow that you have to depose the prime minister who was working so hard to tackle the pandemic, who's got the big calls right in terms of the vaccination programme, lifting the COVID restrictions, and in Ukraine has been such a staunch supporter and such an early supporter of Ukraine? And in my judgment, I don't think we've met that bar. And he'll be your leader at the next election? Two years is a long time in politics. <laughs> you but, can't uh, say yes. But, uh, but I think that, um, it, you know, the, that's the, obviously the central scenario. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Harriet Baldwin, behind, I'm going to call it the Baldwin Bill. Good luck with the Baldwin Bill. It sounds like it's an overdue reform to uh, the way we run this country. Thanks for joining us today on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Harriet Baldwin there. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed this show. Do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this show. For more from me, why not sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter? You'll get daily insights and political gossip right into your email inbox every lunchtime and don't say we don't treat you. The link to sign up is in the show notes to this episode. And be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column every Friday evening at 7pm on the Telegraph's website and in Saturday's newspaper. Thank you to my guests, Mark Harper, Michael Fabric and, of course, Harriet Baldwin. Thank you to my brilliant team of producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gere and Theodore Luludis. And, as ever, thank you to you for listening. And finally, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can, available in all good newsagents. I know you won't regret it. 
Until next time, though, cheerio!